Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, also alongside a senior writer at Future Sox. Today's guest, Jim Callis. You can find him at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. The best of the best. Jim, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for jumping on the podcast. Oh, glad to be here. Glad to be here with you guys. You know, we wanted to start with Colson Montgomery because early in the draft coverage, I guess maybe, I don't know how long, a couple of months, eight weeks prior to the amateur draft in 2021, we saw that Colson Montgomery was linked to the White Sox. And we saw that usually baseball pipeline also had Colson Montgomery linked to the White Sox. So we were just curious on how that process began, uh, what caught I guess the White Sox interest in Colson Montgomery early on and what led you to believe that he would eventually become a White Sox draft pick? Well, I actually, I, I joked about this with Mike Shirley, uh, the White Sox scouting director at the, at the draft combine when I ran into him there and he apologized for not getting back to me. Um, when I was texting him as I was doing a mock draft every couple of weeks. And I said, that's fine. We'll just like everybody else. We'll just keep giving you the Indiana prospect. Uh, Cause it Mike's ties to the state of Indiana where he lives. I, I joked, I said, you're just going to get Colson Montgomery in every mock draft until, uh, until you tell me otherwise, or, or get back to me. And he chuckled, but no, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know where I first heard that. I mean, you know, these things, it's, it's more like you start talking to teams and, you know, I think other teams just sensed that the White Sox were on him. And, I mean, we heard a lot of high school bats tied to the White Sox. And, you know, then there was some late talk. Oh, maybe they're going to have to take a college arm. But um, I don't know where I first heard of it. I mean, I think I think we – I think you even DM'd with me. I mean, I think we heard of it kind of roughly this <laughs> the same time. Like, it seems like it was two months ago. And I- I'm still kicking myself a little bit. I – I, I had the Cubs taking Colson Montgomery one pick ahead of the White Sox in my final mock draft. So after having it probably for three or four mock drafts in a row, I didn't even get it right in the one that counted. So, but uh, what can you do? Yeah, uh, you guys were on it. And, and Jim, you worked uh, during the draft too. I mean, you know, information coming in as the the draft was going on and it's it got some coverage too. I mean, back-to-back years in which, you know, it's picked up on primetime television, at least the first round. Uh, what do you see is evolving across Major League Baseball's amateur draft and the interest surrounding it nowadays? Well, the ratings were up this year. You know, it was on a, a you know Sunday night. It was part of the All Star Game festivities. MLB wanted to move it, you know, to that All Star Game. It's almost a full week now. I guess we can call it All Star Game week, uh, so it'd be more visible. And and I think the ratings reflected that. And and so I think it's probably there to stay for a little while. It was, you know, kind of cool. This was the first time, you know, it's been. In a studio, you know, I've done the last, geez, I guess since 2009. It's been a long time. Well, 12 drafts in a row at the at the MLB Network Studios in Secaucus, New Jersey. And this was on the road, and, and they kind of could do some cool things. You had this big theater, and you had, fan, you know, a number of fans there. So, uh, you know, I think they, I think we had eight players there. Sounds right, eight players. And I think they're going to try to continue to get more and, and, and make it a – you know, bigger deal on TV, uh, you know, going forward too. Jim, I know you saw Colson when you, you know, when you went to the MLB draft combine, I'm not sure if you had seen him before that, but you know, I guess did seeing him that, did that change anything? You know, did you, I know they didn't do much there, but did, did that influence, I guess, any of your thoughts as far as like him being able to stay at shortstop or just anything in regards to him being, you know, like a top 25 pick in the first round? No, I mean, not really. I mean, I mean, he, he took BP 
<laughs> and he took infield. I mean, guys have seen – I hadn't seen him in person, but, like, scouts had seen him take BP a bunch and, and take infield. So I don't think that really moved the needle on him. I mean, I, I do know – your team said they got a lot of value – uh, in general, out of interviewing players face to face, you know that that's been more difficult to do, you know, as we've dealt with the pandemic the last couple of years. So I think that was a lot of value. I, I don't know that the on-field performance necessarily moved the needle. I mean, he certainly, yeah. I, I will say this personally. I mean, and it's an easy trap to fall into. I mean, I, I most of the guys I talked to felt like he's going to be a third baseman in the long term because he's got fringy speed and he's going to get bigger and probably slow down a little bit more, but he looked good taking infield. I mean, he's obviously athletic, very good basketball player. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I would do what the, what, what the White Sox are going to do. I'd run him out there as shortstop for a while and, and see how long that could last. But um, yeah, no, I mean, he, he, he looked, he looked good. I mean, again, you know, forever you could tell from BP and in, in infield, uh, you know, he, he looks very good. So I had talked to scouts like just a couple days before the draft. And, you know, I guess the sense was that the White Sox might have to pivot just because there were like all sorts of rumored destinations before them for Colson. And obviously the Mets thing. How real do you think that Mets thing was like prior to them basically figuring out that they could pay for Kumar Rocker at 10 and deciding to do that instead? Yeah, the Mets thing just didn't quite fit because you were either going to have to take him. Like, like my, my understanding I got from them from working on mock drafts and, and talking to teams was I think the Mets legitimately really liked him, but not really to take him at 10. Um, I think they would have loved to, you know, get him with their second pick, which, which wasn't going to happen. It was going to be too late. Now that said, I mean, they have gone under slot for, for high school players in the first round before. So I, I didn't rule out a possibility that, you know, maybe they take him at 10, you know, he's a below slot deal there. And then they, they go big later, but it just, I was getting more information that they were going to probably go with the college guys, either, either one of the elite guys, you know, I thought there was kind of a, a clear group of eight players at the top of the draft, kind of, you, know, you put them in whatever order, you know, the four high school shortstops, two Vanderbilt pitchers, you know, Henry Davis and Jackson Job. The, 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 their, their, their ideal scenario was one of those guys would fall to him. And, and a number of those guys fell to him and they took Rocker. But I felt like, barring that, they were probably going to go college. You take one of the second tier college guys. So I, the, the Colson Montgomery stuff was out there with the Mets. And I do think they had real interest. They just weren't in a spot of the draft where it, it, it really would work. I want to take you back to Colson Montgomery here. We're going to keep it here. Now, I want to talk also about West Cath, the second round pick. I mean, White Sox go on high school and back-to-back picks, first and second round. It's really exciting for us as evaluators uh, just to see the philosophy change a little bit. But with Colson Montgomery as a 19-and-a-half-year-old, you know, this was made kind of a big deal by some. Does that matter? I mean, how, how much does that play into an organization's decision to select a player like that? It, it's different. I mean, you're talking about the age. It, 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 it's different for different organizations. I mean, there are teams that use models, and they're simply not going to take a guy that old in the draft. You know, he turned 19 in February. I to me, I think that stuff's overblown. If everything were equal, yes. I'd rather have a 17-year-old than an 18-year-old than a 19-year-old. But that's if everything's equal. Ultimately, it comes down to talent. And I remember a couple of years ago, you know, Brett Beatty, there was this, you know, he, he was 19 and a half, I think, on draft day. And he was one of the best high school bats in the draft. And there were teams that just flat out wouldn't take him. But if, if Brett Beatty had gone to school instead of signing with the Mets as a first-round pick, he would have been draft eligible, I think, this year at Texas. If he had a big year at Texas, everybody would have been like, oh, 21-year-old college guy. We like that. And, you know, had there not been the pandemic, Brett Beatty would have been low, young, you know, particularly young for low class A in his first full pro season. 
know, if we'd had a minor league season last year. And, you know, again, I, I would look at age, but if you think Colson Montgomery is the best player on the board, like, you know, again, Colson Montgomery will be, you know, 20 years old, you know, opening day next year in low A. He'll be young for low A when he, when he, when he plays there. So I, I, I mean, I, I get it that, you know, you're, you're trying to hedge bets and it's a data point, but, but ultimately I, I think the talent matters more than the age. Um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, Bobby Wood Jr., everybody's falling all over themselves over about Bobby Wood Jr. And for good reason, Bobby Wood Jr. was 19 when he was drafted two years ago. Are we not going to take him? So I just, to walk away from a player simply because of his age, I, I just don't get that. So um, I, I don't, I mean, I know there were teams that, that, that bothered them. Um, and, and, you know, there were teams that flat out wouldn't have taken him in the first round um, that they, they, they use age heavily in their models. But to me, I think you got to take the best, the, the best guy. Colson Montgomery officially signed with the White Sox earlier this week. It was announced on Tuesday that he is now officially Chicago White Sox in the organization. And like you said, Jim, we can expect him to develop as a shortstop, at least early on in his career. We'll see how that goes. How about the second round pick in West Cath? A shortstop out of Arizona, a high school prep guy, uh, same profile, lefty bat, right-handed thrower. But we are led to believe that he's more of a third base, first base projectable piece. What do the White Sox have in West Cat? Yeah, I think that is true. I think he's a definite third baseman. They announced him as third baseman. I mean, if I'm the White Sox, I'm excited because I do think if Colson Montgomery had, say, gone to the Cubs at 21, there's a good chance they might have taken West Cath at 22, and they didn't, and they got him in the first round. I mean, they got him in the second round, but he, he he's a guy who, who like Colson Montgomery, he's a left-handed hitter. He's a chance to hit for power and average. Um, I, I think he has a chance to be a good third baseman. He, he's got a strong arm. He's got good hands. He's not as not as quick, um, you know, as Colson Montgomery is right now. And, and, and I think he's going to be a little stockier when all is said and done. But, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I would imagine we're going to see you know, I think we'll see those guys developing alongside each other, I would think, and, and come up through the system together over the next couple of years. Jim, you know, the White Sox have been pretty college-heavy, obviously. They haven't taken a prep player in the first round since Courtney Hawkins in 2012. They have done it recently, you know, with young pitching, and we've had you on and talked about that lately, you know, in t- last year with Jared Kelly and the year before with Dahlquist and Thompson. What do you think about, does it make sense, this strategical shift? I mean, they're a they're a winning team in the big league. Does it make sense to get a little bit younger in the farm system, whether that's to, you know, have trade pieces or to just get younger in general? I mean, honestly, to me, I think you just, you should take the best player um, regardless of his demographic. I, you know, like if, you know, all those years of taking college guys and they got some good players, but I just, I just don't believe you should paint yourself into a demographic corner Um just take the best available player. And I think they did that in their minds with Colson Montgomery and West Cath. I mean, I heard, I mean, I think you guys have heard some of it too. Like there's thought like, Hey, the farm system, it's really thinned out because they've promoted so many guys to the big leagues. You know, these young pitchers are, are not doing particularly great at Kannapolis. Um, and then they need, you know, I heard like there was talk, you know, which turned out not to be true. You know, the, the upper management may want them to take some college dudes so that they have trade value more quickly. Um, I, I just think talent's talent. You got to take the best guy. In a typical draft, there's maybe 30 or 40 good players, you know, who are going to be good for a number of years. You know, you're going to have other guys who have a career year here and there. But if you're talking about guys who are consistently good for a period of years, it's 30 or 40 max. And if you say, hey, we're only going to take a college guy in the first round, well, 
you're eliminating some good high school players. So, uh, you know, I, I think that my takeaway would be, I, I like the idea. I hadn't realized it been so long since they'd taken a high school guy, Courtney Hawkins. And, you know, they've invested some high school guys in later rounds. But but I, I just, to me, the takeaway is take the best player. And, and it seems to me that's what they did, you know, rather than, hey, we've got to get a college guy early. So they did go to the college pitching well, you know, fairly early with Sean Burke in the third. That was 94th overall. You guys had him, um, I think, at 75-ish overall. What are your thoughts on that pick in the third round for them? Yeah, I mean, he, he I thought he was kind of a third-round pick. You know, big guy, 92-95, you know, good life on the fastball. He's got, you know, knuckle curve and a slider. They're, they're inconsistent but have their moments. He's got the makings of a changeup. He doesn't use a whole lot. You know, I mean, I think he's got to throw more strikes, but there's there's good raw ingredients. And how about another arm, too, that I wanted to focus on is Tanner McDougal. And this is a prep arm. Mike Shirley went in to the post-draft conference call with White Sox beat writers. He mentioned that Tanner McDougal had a 3,000 spin rate as they were scouting him. I mean, that jumps off the page, at least to us. I mean, how significant is that for a player out of high school in the fifth round going to the White Sox? Yeah, he was interesting. I, I mean, I, there weren't a whole lot of guys who, who participated in games at the Combine. Um, you know, the college guys couldn't. They had some high school games. It was kind of like mid-rounds type of guys. And McDougal pitched really well when I saw him out there. Um, you know, he, he showed, you know, high spin rates. As you noted, he showed a good fastball. Um, you know, wound up, um, you know, I think the Combine really helped him. I mean, I that's going to be an overslot signing. It wouldn't surprise me if he got the third highest bonus in their draft. Um, you know, but he's, he's kind of that projectable high school arm that, you know, they, they, they like to work with, you know, they've invested a lot in high school arms, you know, Kelly Thompson, Dahlquist recently. And, and I mean, he's Cuban, you know, Nora kind of fits that profile, you know, and here's another one in McDougal. And this is just me being curious. I don't mean to throw a curveball at you, but early rounds for the Detroit Tigers and the Cleveland Indians. I mean, they went, pretty pitcher heavy as well. Just some of the names that jumped off the page, highly scouted pitchers going within the division. I mean, how quickly can we expect to see them at the major league ranks? Anybody that the whites or excuse me, that the tigers and Cleveland picked that jumped out to you that intrigued you. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at those teams. You know, I Detroit, you know, I thought Detroit had a great first day where they get Jackson Job at three. You know, I think his stuff grades out better uh, then even lighters and rockers, which is just great pure stuff. And then they got Ty Madden, who kind of fell because of fastball um, uh, metrics. Um, and they got him at 32. So I, I thought they got two of the you know four or five best pitchers in the draft right there. And they, they got some more college pitchers who were interesting, you know, on day two. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, Cleveland, you know, <laughs> hey, I, I like their guys. I mean – you know, Gavin Williams, you know, pitched well down the stretch. The Casey pitched well down the stretch. Tommy Mace is okay. Like, like he's been around for a while. I might have a little fatigue with Tommy Mace. But, you know, they, they did okay. Like, I mean, I think they, they took guys about where they belonged in the draft. I mean, I think, I think the Royals are interesting from a pitching standpoint, too. They, they you know, had the kind of the, the big surprise early with, with Frank Mazzucato at seven. Although some teams thought he was the best lefty in the draft. And, and they cut a deal with him. He wouldn't have been there with their second pick. And they went $3 million on a really good-looking high school right-hander named Ben Kaderna. So, so I thought that was uh, – you know, I thought they, they made some strides with their pitching too. And, I mean, shoot, even the Twins – I mean, everybody was going pitching. The Twins took Chase Petty in the first round and came back with Steve Hadger and, and Kate Povich and Christian McLeod and loaded up on college lefties on the second day. So a, a lot of pitching came into the, to the AL Central. 
So, you know, a 20 round draft, the White Sox are expected to sign the majority of their class. It, it seems like, you know, they've, they've done a decent job developing mid to late round pitching, you know, just like into useful relievers that can help a big league team. We're not going to do too much more on this year's draft, but you know, anybody else interesting um, that stands out to you that you just like kind of like from their class from the White Sox class, you know, a couple more guys I'd point out and they're all pitchers who, you know, uh, you know, aren't by any means sure things, but are super, you know, interesting guys, you know, Brooks Gosswine in the fourth round, like, I'll be curious to see how that one pans out because his first start of the year, he was he, he shut out Ball State for seven innings. And guys looked at him and said, that guy has a chance to go in the first round. And they gave him 15 runs in his next six innings over his next three outings and didn't pitch for a month. Um, so he was kind of all over the place. Then, then he pitched well in April and not in May. But he's a lefty up to 96 with a solid slider. So there, there could really be something there. You know, Tanner Broadway – you know, sixth round, you know, he's going to be cheap. He's a fifth-year senior. He's he's kind of short, you know, right-hander. But he pitched really well out of the bullpen for Ole Miss. He was up to 97 with good life, hard slider, power curveball, like throws strikes. Um, you know, I you know you were talking about those, those you know, relievers they've developed. He could be a guy who gets there pretty quick. And kind of a day three sleeper is Johnny Ray at TCU in the 12th round. Now, <laughs> he's hard to figure out because – didn't pitch when he was at Illinois State in 2018. He had an oblique injury at John A. Logan in 2019 and barely pitched. You know, you had the coronavirus, you know, shutting down last season. He couldn't throw strikes this year at TCU. But last year, he, he beat Max Meyer, who was a number three pick in the draft with a two-hit shutout. This year, he had a six-and-a-half ERA with 13 homers and 44 in the third innings, which is not good. But... He's 91-97. He's got a downer curveball. He's got a slider. He's got a changeup. He can show you four solid pitches. So, to me, that's like kind of a, a player development dream. And you definitely have stuff to work with there. So, I, I think those are three guys who, look, I mean, they, they all come, you know, there's sort of question marks on those guys. But Goswine, Broadway, and, and Johnny Ray, Ray could all be really interesting guys. It wouldn't shock me if one of those guys winds up, you know, being a, a, a useful big leaguer. Yeah, I think it's so interesting just the scouting process this year, how difficult it was to go out to facilities and, and scout players and just, uh, you know, teams aren't in the mix for some of these guys too. So Mike Shirley and the scouting staff, uh, you know, he he raves about his team and uh, it's encouraging to hear your opinion as well on this White Sox draft class. So last thing about it, and then we'll, we'll shift really into the prospects that are within the system already. If you had to put, West Cath and Colson Montgomery, the two top picks for the White Sox, anywhere in their top 30 at this point, where would you put them? With, with the caveat that we probably need to rearrange the top 30 because it's it's all over the place right now and guys are promoting. We haven't updated it since the beginning of the season. Um, I'd be tempted, and I have not looked at it <laughs> uh, like in great depth, I'd be tempted to put Colson Montgomery as the number one prospect. I mean, what do you guys all right. think? Like, who would you take over Colson? I, I, I have... Yeah. Some, I have some skepticism about Yoelki Suspedis a little bit, not a ton, but 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 some. Like the swing and miss concerns me, and that was a concern when they signed him. And and I like Jared Kelly, but I mean he's not pitching real great at Kannapolis. Um so it's hard to you know you know say he's their number one prospect. I mean you know that he got off to a bad start. They they gave him a couple months off, and he's come back and he's given up four runs in two and two thirds innings in the last week or so. So I, I think I'd be tempted to put Colson Montgomery number one and 
I guess I haven't thought about West Cath as much. Um, I don't know. Like West Cath, probably somewhere in the middle of the top ten, somewhere. Yeah, they're they're probably both in the top five right now. The system, you know, took some hits, obviously, with the you know all the guys in the majors, and I you know I share some of the skepticism on Cespedes. I mean, he's he's ranked high. He gets the you know the international prospect ranking, but he is twenty three, and the, the issues are apparent. And then other than him, I mean, yeah, it's like the high school right handers that have struggled. So it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Um, Montgomery at one is you know, fine, but you know, he's definitely like one of the top three, I think. So we'll yeah, I mean, we're anxious Mo- to see the re-ranking. I'd probably go Montgomery one. And I haven't talked to anybody. So this all, but you know, Suspedis, I'd probably put him, keep him at two. He's two right now. You know, I need to move sheets and burger up and, you know, and then it's like, I, you know, the, the Canapolis pitchers are hard to figure out cause they just haven't pitched a whole lot. So, you know, you mentioned sheets and burger um, and, I know you were a big fan of Berger when he came out. I mean, who doesn't love this story? It's great. But what are what are your thoughts on just like both of those players helping a first place team? In addition to, I mean, Andrew Vaughn as well is playing left field. Gavin Sheets is playing some outfield and Berger's up there a little bit unforeseen. What do you think about just what that says about, I guess, like the the character of those guys and they're just, you know, they're out, they're out there playing positions that they weren't really scheduled to play, I should say. Yeah, no, I mean... I think it says a lot about those guys. I mean, and it, it's it, it's a tribute to the system and the development staff that these guys are ready to step in. I mean, look, with all the injuries the White Sox have had this year, it would have been very easy for them to to fold up a little bit and or not fold, but like yeah, certainly not have the best record in the American League like they do as we talk. And you know, you, I give Andrew Vaughn a lot of credit. You know, I mean, he, he's barely played the outfield before this year, and you know, he didn't get a lot, you know, his playing time was kind of sporadic at the beginning of the season, but he's, he's really contributed when, when they've had a, a slew of outfield injuries and Gavin Sheets, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I mean, again, it's small sample size. It's not like we're putting Jake Berger, or Gavin Sheets in the hall of fame yet, but you know, I mean, Gavin Sheets, I mean, he hit for some power kind of the second half of 2019, but it's not like he had a long track record of hitting for power in the system. And, and he's been a nice revelation, you know, since he's been up and, and then Jake Berger, who basically hadn't played, and you know, unless we're counting the the Car Shield Collegiate League in like official games since 2017, you know they they promote him to AAA, hits the ground running, plays well there, and you know now he steps in at the big league level um, and, and contributes. I mean, if you had said a year ago, hey, you know the White Sox are have the best record in the American League, and, and Gavin Sheets will be playing a, a key role in July. I, I could have believed the first part, but I would have been like, I'm mean, not Gavin Sheets. I mean, well, I, I said Gavin Sheets, but I said Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger. I would have been like, I, I don't know about the second part. Where are those guys, How are those guys going to be playing, really? But no, I mean, he's been, I mean, both those guys, it, it, it's been a nice story. So yeah, a credit to all those guys. Yeah, I think a lot of people were caught off guard, even with like him starting, Berger starting at Charlotte this year. I saw Berger three times at the alternate site last year. And he looked completely different, obviously. He kind of looked like this guy. And look, like they're just, you know, it's like glorified practice, but like his body looked better than it's ever looked. And he was running and not hurt. So then I think internally we were like questioning ourselves too, right? Because we had kind of like Jake Berger was ranked in the back half of our top, our system top 30. And it's like, well, if this guy's healthy, I mean, he went 11th overall in the country for a reason. You know, he's 25, obviously, so the, you know. A lot of lost at-bats, though, too, so. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's and then you know they promoted him to Triple A right away, and I don't think anybody expected him to you know have like a nine hundred ops at at Triple A, and then they had a bunch of injuries, and he's in the big leagues. So yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, if, if not if not for injuries in the pandemic, if everything had gone according to plan, A, he would have been in the big leagues already. But he essentially lost like 1,500 at-bats, you know, from 2018 through 2020. And there's just no way of knowing how he's going to come back from that. And, and frankly, like even, you know, when he made his debut, he hit a lot of ground balls. Like, I, I mean, I don't think anybody was giving up on him, but he made a lot of ground ball contacts. So it's like, okay, this guy's going to have to make some adjustments. And then you get a chance to play for three years. When they took him 11 overall, I know that, you know, I remember you liking him, but what were your thoughts on just like how he was at third and if he was like destined to be a first baseman at some point? I, I, you know, he does look leaner now and he has gotten more athletic, but like I did believe in him. Like, you know, I, I was a big Jake Berger fan. I, I thought he had some deceptive athleticism. You're talking to scouts like, you know, I, I thought he'd be I thought he could play an average third base. Um, and, you know, and he actually, I mean, he could show some good run times out of the box at times too. Like I, I thought he was, because he was listed at six two two thirty. like, I think you look at that and, and you're not thinking, oh, okay. Like, like that, that's a good athlete. But like, I, I thought he had some deceptive athleticism. So I had some faith in him, but, but like, I'll admit, like I've, I've kept him kind of in the middle of our White Sox list, but at the same time, I <laughs> wondered like at some point this guy's got to get back on the field and do something like it's, but, but you know. It's it, it, like I said, I, I'm really happy for him because I can't imagine going through what he went through. Right. And that, that was it for us, too. It's like, man, we got to see him play. You know, it's, it's way too much time off. And a lot of it, of course, you know, you can't help the injury bug. And then COVID, too, comes into play here. Uh, but it's a great story. And somebody that's like sort of lumped in that same conversation, or at least guys who have been within the system for as long as Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger is Mike Rodolfo. And you know, Adolfo was added to the 40-man roster in 2017. So, like, his time is is starting to come up here a little bit as we're preparing for 2022. And he's looking to, you know, the power is still there. A lot of swing and miss still in Adolfo's game in Birmingham. But there's, again, a lot of power in Mike Adolfo's bat. What do you foresee the future in this player within the White Sox and maybe potentially uh, across Major League Baseball? Yeah, I mean, he might be a guy who has to go somewhere else to play because they, they have a number of outfield options, and I think it's going to be tough to get him at bats. But, you know, I mean, like you noted, I mean, he's striking out a ton. You know, I, I think, you know, hopefully he can stay healthy because, like, when he's been healthy, he's hit for power. I mean, you know, I guess he's got, what, about 600 at bats over the last four years, <laughs> which is crazy, but he's got, you know, 28 homers in that span, and He's got him. I'm doing the math quickly in my head, like 230 something strikeouts. So, I mean, he's going to have to tighten the strike zone. I mean, the power's real. You know, I think there's something there, but like, I think it's just going to be hard, you know, unless he gets more consistent with the bat and you just look at who's on this White Sox roster for him to get at bats in Chicago. So, you know, God, I mean, it's like, it feels like he signed yesterday and, and, but yesterday was eight years ago now and he's 24 years old. Um, so, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, he's, he's got some talent in there. I mean, he, he's got legit power, but he's going to have to make more contact. And I mean, the last time we saw him in 2019, he was striking out a ton and he struck out a ton in the Arizona fall league too. Like the, the strikeout rate has gotten worse the last couple of years. So I, I think there's something there. I, I just don't know. Like, like this isn't the White Sox of four years ago where you just give him at bats and see what he does with them. 
Like I, I have a hard time, you know, even, even though I do think the power's real, you know, how's he going to fit in the outfield long-term? Yeah. And you know, he's in a tough spot because he just, it just took too long to develop. I mean, you said it felt like yesterday. He was in the same signing class as Aloy Jimenez and Gliber Torres. I mean, yep. you know, it was that long ago and yeah, like he's always had power. He's got 16 homers at Birmingham, I think, but he's striking out 38% of the time. The biggest problem is he's out of options in the spring. So, I mean, he's, he's going to be elsewhere, but I mean, you know, he has to be rostered somewhere. Otherwise he's going to get DFA'd a bunch of times and then just end yeah, up somewhere. Be one of those so, guys. Yeah. And if you told me two years from now, he's hitting homers in the big leagues as a part-time player. Like I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked by that, but you know, it's, it's not going to be in Chicago. It doesn't appear. Yeah. I, I'd agree with that. And here's something too, Jim, that we want to go back on. Cause you mentioned the value or at least the significance of losing at bats over the 2020 season. I think that applies to the young players as well who just missed out on an entire year period. Those who are looking for their first season of professional baseball. And I want to take you to the Kannapolis guys, the younger players. I mean, they're littered across the White Sox top 30 this year. Uh, And specifically Brian Ramos, Jose Rodriguez, DJ Gladney, James Beard. I mean, these players are getting at bats, but it seems like they're just such raw prospects that I don't know how much the the lack of 2020 season impacts them now, but it seems like there's still a ways to go with those players. But in Ramos and Rodriguez, it looks like the talent is there and the bat is translating at the very least. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think we have to kind of take everything these, anybody does with a grain. I mean, we saw it in the college season too. You know, those, those guys obviously started playing before the minor league season this year. You just had guys who had lost a year and maybe played a little summer ball somewhere. Um, and – just performances were all over the place. And, and I think it's the same thing, you know, especially with the super young players who are, are in full season ball for the first time, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But so, yeah, I, I would be encouraged by Ramos and Rodriguez, I, I think are the two best guys. You know, it, it's interesting too. <laughs> Chase Krogman's having a, an interesting year there where he's striking out like 40% of the time, which is way too much. But he's also drawn a boatload of walks and, and hitting for power. So <laughs> I, I don't know quite what to make of him. But, yeah, with Ramos, I mean, I, I think the organization's felt like he's one of the better young hitters in, in the system. And, and I think that's been true. You know, he, he's held his own as a 19-year-old. And, you know, Jose Rodriguez, you know, when we saw him two years ago, had some surprising power in the Arizona League. And, and, he, and he's still showing that surprising power. Uh, you know, he's, he's got some good pop in, in, I want to call it the Sally league. And I know it's not the Sally league anymore. Um, I guess it's the, the low a East, uh, the generic name, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, I'm encouraged by those guys. It's, you know, you know, I don't think you can bury them. I mean, yeah. Do you wish, you know, Bailey and beard and, and DJ Gladney, you know, we're playing better, you know, of course, but like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not burying those guys yet either. It's like, I, I think you kind of have to, take this year with a grain of salt. You know, it'll be interesting though, because with fewer minor league teams, like it is, you know, like I would think a lot of those guys that I just mentioned that second group are going to wind up back in low A next year, but you're also going to have guys sign out this year's draft. You're going to want to have in low A also. So it's, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. I mean, speaking to that, I mean, obviously there's, there's no great falls to like send some of these guys. So we were just curious to see like how much, you know, how much some of them would struggle. And then what do you do? Do you send them all the way back to Arizona? And that's kind of, like the only thing I was wondering, you know, they took a bunch of these college position player types late. Like my guess is those guys are like at Winston next year and they just like fill out that way and then keep like the, the really important guys in Kannapolis. But 
you know, we'll... At least the nice thing is that Rodriguez and Ramos are playing well, so they're not gonna, you're not going to have Montgomery and Kath right on top of them. I think those guys have shown enough. You probably promote them, and Montgomery and Kath are, are your left-side infield at Kannapolis next year. Yeah, I think that makes lots of sense. So, you know, just transitioning away, and we'll let you go. You know, it's a 20-round draft. I, I feel like this is probably the number, right? It's going to stay at 20. There's That would hope, be my guess. Yeah, yeah, there's hopefully a new CBA coming. Are, are you anticipating... Like any any changes to the draft? Pro- I know there's a lot of people, you know, casual fans see that, you know, teams are signing guys for five thousand dollars in the sixth round, and they don't really understand what's going on. Do you think the league as a whole is kind of fine with the way that major league teams have figured out a way to, you know, kind of load up up top, skirt the system from four to ten, and then you know do your your over slots in eleven through twenty, or are you expecting some changes for the, you know, in the future? Yeah, the fans get worked up when they see the, the seniors sign up for $10,000. And what they don't understand is the teams have talked to those players before they, they get that money. In some cases, those guys wouldn't get drafted if they you know weren't going to take $10,000 and help the team massage their bonus pool money you know, and afford. You know, West Cath is going to cost a lot of money, and, and the seniors in, in this year's draft are going to pay for it. Um, so it's not like they're like – that's not the same issue as minor leaguers not getting paid a decent wage to live on or, or have bad living conditions during the season. Those are, those are entirely separate issues. I don't think a lot's going to change with the draft just from the standpoint of, from the owner's standpoint, they want to cost certainty in the draft and they got it. So I think they're fine with however the bonuses get handed out as they have this cost certainty. And with the, with the, with the players, with the union, the union doesn't care about the draft. They, they gave up the whole bonus pool system and got very little in return 10 years ago when everybody knew MLB wanted a, a, a bonus pool system. And the guys aren't members of the union, so I don't think they really care. So And, and if I'm the union, <laughs> I've got so many other things I need to address before I even worry about the draft that doesn't affect my constituents directly anyway. So, no, I, I don't. I don't think the draft is going to be a big focal point or we're going to see much change in, in the new CBA. And then I do have one more that always sure. comes up. And, I, you know, I've heard you discuss this with Jonathan before is just, you know, the, the idea of pick trading. Does, does Jim Callis, the fan of drafts in general, like that idea better than analyst Jim Callis or are you just for it in general? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm for it because I think it would create more interest in the draft. Like like 20 years ago, I think there was a lot of fear that you'd have agents manipulating the draft and said, oh, my guy only wants to play for the Yankees or, or whatever. You know, now I think it, it would just create more interest in draft. It, it would make my job a little harder, but that's fine. It just because, you know, the NFL draft, trying to figure out who's going where, you know, everybody lies to everybody because you could trade. Like one of the things nice, if I talk to a team and they're candid with me, I'm not going to quote them by name, but if they tell me who they're looking at and I'm like, oh, you know, Team X likes this guy or whatever, they don't have to worry that the team behind them is like, oh, well, we need to move ahead of that team. Like if that ever happened, it would make mock drafts a lot harder. But I, I just think it would create a lot of interest um, in the draft. And like, look, if I'm if I'm out of it and or like I'll give you a case in point, the Cubs, it's a lot easier probably to trade for draft picks than it is to trade for. For, for top prospects during the season. And, and you might be able to make a better trade if, if they're, you know, going to trade guys in the next couple of weeks. You know, maybe Chris Bryant gets traded for two first round picks or, or, or something. So I, I just think it would give teams more options. Or if I'm a kid, let's say I'm a contending team with, with, well, and again, I'm not like I, the White Sox farm system is not as strong as it was. Let's say the White Sox want to go out and make a huge move. Like we just talked about, like what, what who's going to be the, that big prospect that you're going to trade? Like, 
not that they're going to trade for Chris Bryant, but let's say they want a Chris Bryant. Who, who's the big prospect you're trading for Chris Bryant right now that's going to entice the Cubs? I don't know, but like if I could trade him my first round pick in the 2022 draft, the, the, you know that might might help you know add to the pot, and then I can make a trade. So um, I, I think it would create interest. So I, I as much as it, it would make my job more difficult, I, I will I will sign off on it and, and be fine with it because I think it would be, it would be good for the the sport interest in the draft. Jim, really appreciate the time. We enjoyed the conversation. Always love following your work. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks again for jumping on the podcast. Oh, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun. This was great. Thanks. That's Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. And thanks so much for listening to the Future Sox podcast. You can check out all of our content, anchor.fm forward slash Future Sox. Go to futuresox.com for everything. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Again, one more time for Jim Callis. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.